If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me uh, to the Gospel of Luke again this morning. And we'll be in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13 is our passage this morning. And it's often uh, known as the parable of the unrighteous steward. Luke 16, 1 to 13. I will be reading the text within the sermon. So uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning that you would help us as a church to be faithful to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Not only in leading people to a, a saving knowledge of Christ, but teaching those who believe in Christ all that Christ has commanded. And not just teaching us what he's commanded, but teaching, uh, teaching that we might observe all that Christ has commanded. Thank you, God, for speaking to us, preserving the words of Christ for us in this text. We ask that your spirit would take the words of Christ and challenge our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would use this sermon to cause us to reevaluate where our priorities lie and what it is that we treasure most of all. And help us to be your servants who use the, the things that you provide for us, the resources for your glory in your service. We ask that you would... Uh, send forth your word and cause it to not return void, but that it would accomplish that which you purpose to do in every one of our hearts. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I began the sermon by mentioning uh, that of all of Jesus' 12 disciples, the most despised was, was Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, who was the, the tax collector. He was the tax collectors in those days, as you know, were notorious for their greed and their betrayal of their fellow man. But on the other side of the spectrum, if you think about who of Jesus' twelve disciples was the most respectable, at least in Jesus' day, the choice might have been Judas Iscariot. Unlike the others who hailed from backwoods Galilee, Judas was from Judea. He seemed to be one who was familiar uh, with uh, some of the religious leaders of that day. And that he served in the position of the treasurer for Jesus indicated that he was likely skilled with handling money. He was probably someone who was, was uh, trustworthy with money. But as most of us know, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus because he was caught up with greed. He regularly stole from the treasury and, of course, he ultimately betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of gold, of silver. Judas is a reminder that all of us, even respectable, skillful, trustworthy disciples with good backgrounds are susceptible to greed and betrayal of Jesus. We all have a sin nature. Therefore, we all have a sinful tendency to want more and more material things. 
in our world, it is quite common that we gauge and evaluate our own status and well-being, often on the basis of the dollar amount in our bank account, on our, on our, and we measure it by how much wealth we have. And we do the same even as we evaluate others. But Jesus warns us otherwise. He warns us in, in Luke, he warned us in Luke 12, 15, when he said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You can be the richest man in the world, but your life does not consist of your stuff, your possessions, your bank accounts, your material goods. It would be a mistake to think that, even though we spend so much time in our world, in our lives, thinking about money and wealth. In today's passage, Jesus teaches his disciples that material possessions and wealth are not our aim, not our purpose in this world, but rather they are tools by which we might serve the Lord. Instead of being lovers of money, we are to be lovers of God. Instead of serving wealth, we are to be serving God. In the previous chapter of Luke 15, Jesus had addressed the the Pharisees and scribes on God's desire to see that sinners repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. While still present among the crowds, these scribes and Pharisees, Jesus now in chapter 16 turns his words towards the disciples. He wants to teach his disciples. And as disciples of Christ today, he wants to teach you and me. He will return to addressing the Pharisees in verse 14, which we'll look at beginning next week. But chapter 16 is really one whole unit. It's meant to be to be read and understood together because the whole chapter teaches on the role of riches and wealth in our lives. Today's passage involves one of the most curious of Jesus' parables, the parable of the unrighteous steward. And Jesus tells this parable to teach his disciples. He wants to teach them that they can learn from this shrewd, this unrighteous steward and serve Christ and serve the Lord. As we look at the passage today, it's pretty straightforward. He's going to tell the parable and then he's going to give some lessons for the parable. We might just simply outline it in this way. Two elements of the parable, the shrewd steward or unrighteous steward, that teach disciples of Christ to serve God with their wealth. And that's, uh, that's what we're going to be heading towards. And hopefully that as we look at this text, we'll understand why we need to be people who, not, who don't just uh, seek to always gain more wealth for ourselves, but people who to seek to serve God with the wealth that he provides us. All right, let's take a look. Number one, point number one is the lesson from a shrewd steward. The lesson from a shrewd steward, and this in verse 1 to 8, is Jesus telling the parable. This parable here in verse 1, uh, in verse 1 to 8. And in verse 1 to 2, we see the squan- that the steward is a squandering steward. We kind of get introduced to him. In verse 1, we read this. Now, he was also saying to the disciples. So, this is even a continuation of the, pre- the pre- uh, previous text. And he said this. There was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. 
Jesus' story here involves two primary people. There's a rich man uh, who, we're to- who begins, we're told a little bit about, but we don't really learn too much more about him. But the, but the focus is on the rich man's manager. He has a manager. Commonly, they're known as stewards. In the New Testament times, wealthy landowners would have a, a steward, uh, an individual who basically was given responsibility over the, the care of all the master's possessions, of all the master's the business. It was essential that stewards be found faithful and trustworthy. But this steward was, was neither. Other servants had reported to the master that this steward had squandered the master's possessions. Instead of keeping it safe, or even better, multiplying the master's possessions, this steward was squandering the master's possessions. The verb for squandered here is used in the very previous chapter of the prodigal son, who had squandered his own share of his father's estate with loose living. Most likely, the steward here was guilty of the same thing, of doing the same thing. He squandered it, the master's possession. He used his master's possession for his own pleasures, for loose living. He is an unfaithful steward. He has failed to do what he was supposed to do. Later in verse 8, Jesus will call him an unrighteous steward. The steward is definitely, he's no saint. And so his master has to do something. And we've seen verse 2, what he does to the squandering student. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear from you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the master confronts his steward. He calls him to give an accounting of his management, to basically give a report, a full report of all the master's possessions, make sure that it's all basically accounted for. And then he receives the news. You're being terminated. You're being fired. His unfaithfulness as a steward left him no longer fit to be a steward because stewards had to be trustworthy, had to be faithful, and he was neither. There's no second chance There's no recourse to keeping his job. He is fired. And once he provides and completes the full report of his master's possessions, he's going to be out in the street. But the story reveals there a little something more about this squandering steward. That the squandering steward is also a shrewd steward. We see this in verses 3 through 8. Manager, verse 3. The manager said to himself, "So, this, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. The manager here, as we the steward here, goes through what many go through when they get fired or terminated or even laid off. There's a, there's a real sense of loss. I know that even today there... Uh, in, among our congregation, there are some of you who have, who have lost your jobs, who have been furloughed, who have been laid off, been unemployed. When you lose a job, basically, it is, it's, it's, like a, it's almost like a death. You lose your identity. You've, you've lost your identity, oftentimes. You've lost your income. You've lost even your purpose. You've lost your social circle of coworkers. And there's all these, there's a, full, there's a range of emotions from anger from, to sadness to anxiety and fear. This particular steward feels this fear and anxiety. What is he going to do for a living now? 
he really, he comes to this, immediately says that I can't do anything else. I'm not strong enough to do manual labor like digging. I'm too ashamed to go out in the street and beg. If he doesn't do something, he realizes that his future is looking bleak. He realizes that he's going to have no hope. And then an idea comes to him. Verse 4. What's this idea? It's almost like as he's been thinking, he says, Aha, I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He knows that he cannot return to his master's household. But he devises a plan so that other people will welcome him into their homes, whether as a guest or perhaps even as an employee, another a steward to them. What is this plan that he comes up with so that other people are going to hire him even after this, this master fires him? He surely, don't, the reputation will get around when they, that, people, that he's not trustworthy. But what is it that he can do that would put him in the good graces of others that would welcome him into their homes? We read his plan in verses 5 to 7. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and and write eighty. So as the steward is wrapping up his master's business, giving, preparing the full accounting, this idea comes to him. The steward starts calling each of his master's debtors, people who owe his master a debt of some sort. And apparently his master was somehow probably lent money to others uh, to, to farm and basically to, to do business. And there was an expectation of a return, a certain amount of return from their harvest that would be paid back to uh, this steward's master. And the first man that he calls owes a hundred measures of oil. And presumably this is olive oil. A measure was something equivalent to about 8.75 gallons. So this hundred measures of oil is 875 gallons of olive oil. And if you've ever bought olive oil, you know that's not, it's not cheap stuff. And so this is no small amount. This is about a hundred, I think it's like hundred estimates of hundred, the, the, the produce of 150 olive trees. Its value, its worth was about a thousand denarii, or about three year three years wages for a common laborer. Three years of wages. And what does the steward do when he hears of this a uh, thousand denarii? I mean, he obviously he must have kept record. He knows, but he wants the the um, the debtor to basically to express it verbally so that he can actually. S- to make the uh, the contrast much more uh, obvious. And the steward then says, quickly sit down and change it to 50. Fifth, instead of 100 measures of oil, he knocks it down to 50 measures of oil. It's a, a 50% reduction. It was an extremely generous gift that would not be forgotten the second debtor that comes, he owes a hundred measures of wheat, which was equivalent to about 1,100 bushels, valued at even more than the oil. 
2,500 to 3,000 denarii. That's eight to 10 years of wages for a common laborer. And the steward then reduces the second man's debt by 20%. He tells him to write down 80. And we can presume that this steward then went down the list of all the debtors and did something very similar with each of them as he did with these first two. Each of these debtors would remember the steward's generosity. But the question remains, how, how could he do this? Did he really just, from when we read it, it's, it's kind of like shocking. Did he really just cheat his master? Did he basically kind of fudge the book so that his master would be robbed instead of getting his hundred, his hundred uh, measures, he would only get fifty or a hundred uh, um, measures, he would get just only eighty? Now there, at this point, there's a disagreement among various commentators. Some believe that he really did cheat his master. And this is the traditional view, and, and that he reduced the debts that were owed to his master. So, so in a sense, he robs his master, uh, but and somehow kind of uh, makes it so that they only that their debt is these people who owed his master are owing actually less. So his master gets robbed. However, since he had to give a, eventually a full accounting to his master, it is unlikely that he would do something that might have angered his master. It would have actually. Uh, lest he would then be accused of stealing and then appropriately punished or imprisoned even. It's more likely that he did something that was legitimate. And so recent commentators, probably in the last 20 years or so, uh, some, some recent commentators now believe that the amount that he reduced it by was basically the, the steward's commission. Just like the practice of the tax collectors, when they were asked by Rome to collect a certain amount, they would basically increase the amount that was expected. They would demand more. And as they demand more, they would be able to collect Rome's portion, but whatever they could get more than what Rome required would be their commission. And so, similarly, this steward would have done something like that. He was, and when he reduced it from 150 and 180, he was simply reducing the amount owed by the commission that he was going to receive. So while the master still got what was owed him, the steward, by giving up his commission, gained favor with these many debtors. These debtors who would then give him security for the future. And we see the response of the master to this steward's plan in verse 8. Jesus tells us, And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. The master praises the unrighteous steward. He's because the steward had acted shrewdly. This word shrewdly, it's, in, it's an adverb, but it's, and it's only used, uh, it appears in this adverb form only once in all the New Testament, but it has <clears throat> its adjective form or noun form appears elsewhere in, in the New Testament several times. 
One place it's used is back in Luke chapter 12, verse 42, where Jesus speaks of the faithful and sensible steward. That's word sensible is this word here, shrewd. The word conveys a wisdom or thoughtfulness. The steward had acted wisely in the face of a bleak future. But by taking actions with his commission, he ensured himself a secure future. And then in the latter part of verse 8, Jesus connects the parable that he just, tell, that he just told with his listeners, with his disciples. He says, The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. The sons of this age are referred to the people of this world. Um, they're in contrast to the sons of light. So these are the sons of darkness. These are those people who live in the world today the sons of this age, who are living in darkness, who are living just for this world. There's people like the unrighteous steward. By implication, by contrast, the sons of light here are the disciples of Jesus Christ, and they are those sons and daughters, really, of the age to come. They're not sons of this world. They're not about living for this world. They're really about living for the age that has come. As children who are sons of light and daughters of light, we are living not for this world. We're not living for this age. This is not our world. We are meant for a world that is to come, a world that is going to be eternal, everlasting. But the sons of light, Jesus makes a challenge to the sons of light, and he, says he, he brings up something that is wise, something commendable about uh, the sons of this age, that they are shrewd, they are more shrewd in relating to one another than sons of light, than disciples are. Jesus is challenging his disciples to be shrewd like this steward, to be wise like this steward, be thoughtful like this steward. The steward had wisely used his material wealth, what little he had left, to ensure a better future in his material world. And Jesus wants his disciples to wisely use their material wealth, our material wealth, to ensure a better future, not in this world, but in the world to come. He wants his disciples to faithfully use the wealth that he has entrusted to them as stewards to ensure a secure future for themselves and that those they minister to. He is challenging his disciples to be Faithful stewards who use their wealth to serve Him. And this is the lesson. This is, the, this is primarily the, the main challenge that Jesus makes to His disciples. In verses 9 and 13, our second point, our second element of this parable, is Jesus starts making application to the disciples. And I, in the verse 9 and 13, we might call it the application for faithful stewards. So he's taught the story, the parable, now he makes application. Here's the application, here are the principles that he wants us to, put, to take home. And he makes three of them here in, this, in these, uh, in these uh, five verses. The first application in verse 9 is to make friends with wealth. God, is the, God has given us all these riches and wealth, and we are to make friends with this wealth, is what he's saying. Verse 9, let's look at it. 
And I say to you, so Jesus now says, directs his, this instruction to his disciples directly. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is a, a kind of just an unusual statement. It's kind of uh, un, and, and kind of uh, it's not something quite uh, that we think about each day. But the wording here in verse nine is quite very similar to the wording in the parable of verse four. There, you recall, the steward realized he had to do something so that when he no longer had access to his master's possessions, people whom he had blessed through his stewardship would receive him into their homes. But here Jesus tells his disciples to do something so that when, when, we, when their wealth fails, when their possessions are gone, when it's no longer available to help them, there will be a certain kind of people, this, this group referred to as they, will receive you into their eternal homes. There's, very, there's a parallel, there's a connection here. So what is it then that the disciples of Jesus are to do? They are to make friends. For yourselves, by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. The they who receive you are these friends who are made by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness. Wealth, by the way, is called unrighteous here in that it is, it is, in, that it is only for this world and that sometimes in its pursuit of it and love of it, it causes all sorts of pains. We're, we can think of 1 Timothy 6.10 where... Paul writes that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Wealth can be considered called unrighteousness in that the love of it can cause you to fall away and to neglect God and to, and to, and to uh, fall into many difficulties and trials. See, in sinful greed, what is meant as an instrument easily becomes an idol for us. A means becomes an end. It becomes what we pursue instead of what we use. The love of wealth causes us to lose focus on on our heavenly home, even, and settle for worldly pursuits. So Jesus wants his disciples to use the wealth that he has entrusted to them to make friends who will be there in heaven to receive them. See, when we use our wealth generously for God's kingdom, there are going to be those people who are impacted by our giving. We may never know who it is when you give to a missionary, for instance, who goes off to another country and leads people to the Lord. That was through your giving, your use of resources. You might not know that until you get to heaven. But those who have been impacted by your giving will be there in heaven. Because of the proclamation of the gospel, support, the, uh, the furtherance of the kingdom, there will be those who will be there and they will welcome you. You know, when we get to heaven, it will be simply enough just to see Jesus, right? Because He is our greatest treasure. It's just, just to see Jesus face to face, our Lord and Savior, the one who died for us, the one who loved us and never forsake, forsook us throughout this life. He will be there to welcome us in. But uh, on top of all that, there will be also others there. Others there who will welcome us in. 
A lot of times we think of when we go to heaven, we're going to see all the people that we loved and we miss our, our moms, our dads, our, our siblings, our friends, our, our dear past beloved saints. But there will be more than that. There will be those whom we, our lives have touched through our, the use of our wealth and resources who have come, whose lives have been changed and who are there because of your use of God's resources entrusted to you. What joy will that be, right? A lot of times we don't know. We, we, we just, we, we give, but we have no real sense of really the, the impact of it all. We'd love to know in this life, but we're not. But when we get to heaven, we'll see it all. We'll see how God used everything in our lives and in the ways that we learn. And we'll hear it from others who will welcome us in heaven. What joy it will be to see how God used the resources that we gave for his gospel to be proclaimed. In one day, all our money, all our wealth will fail. Money and wealth and possessions, it's only for this life. At our deaths, no amount of it will help us. You can have a billion dollars, trillion dollars, that will not get you any closer to heaven, no closer to Jesus Christ. Only faith in Jesus Christ will matter at that moment. But with final breath, we will enter into heaven and where what we did with our money on this side of eternity will matter on that side of eternity as we see the dear treasures that we stored up in heaven. Sometimes it's just as a practical kind of just devotional thought. If I asked you what is your greatest treasure, most of us would probably say, if we kind of being spiritual, we'd probably say Jesus. And then after Jesus, we'd say it's our family, our our relationships that we have. And that's, that's, that's a... A great, and that's a great realization. Our family, our, our friends, our relationships, these are some of the greatest treasures. But when we die, depending upon where we stand with them, we might be separated forever. Or we can be together forever. If these earthly relationships are a treasure to you, then what is one, the one way that you can ensure that you will have these treasures even in heaven is by sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And one way we can do that is through even using the resources, the wealth that God gives us by doing kind deeds, by meeting the needs of our, of our family, of our friends, of fellow saints, by giving generously so that they, as we give, they come to see our, yes, our love for them, that we seek their good, and that through that, they will understand our love and that we can, that as we speak our words of the gospel, that it will just continue, just be simply a continuation, and they will understand that our words are also a reflection of our love for them, and that they would come to believe in Jesus Christ. Make friends with your wealth. 
Give your, your resources so that they may be used for the proclamation of the gospel. And give, use your resources so that you may show love towards others through which the gospel, door of the gospel might be opened so that people may come to know Jesus. And that on the other side of eternity will be there to receive you. Let's be those who make friends with our wealth as faithful stewards. A second application that Jesus makes is in verses 10 to 12. And that is simply to be faithful with wealth. Be faithful with wealth. Verses 10 to 12. We see just As we read these verses, just notice how many times the word faithful shows up. Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus begins in verse 10 here with a statement of a general principle that those who are faithful in a very little thing will be faithful in much greater things. And if you're unrighteous, unfaithful in little things, then you are going to be one who is unfaithful and unrighteous in much greater things. That's the general principle. And as elders of the church here at SF Bible, this principle often comes up in our, uh, in our considerations when we discuss uh, people who may be entrusted as ministry leaders or as deacons or deaconesses of the church, or even as elders of the church. We ask ourselves, has this person shown faithfulness in smaller things, and lesser things? If so, then we can entrust them with greater things. For instance, if someone just comes up to me and says, I want to preach. I want to preach next week. I'm not going to say, oh yeah, sure. I'll go ahead. I'm going to ask, well, have you taught anywhere else? Have you taught our children's class? Have you had a chance to teach our, our youth? Have you had a chance to lead a small Bible study? Have you been able to teach to our Sunday school classes. I'm going to find out if you've been faithful in, in those lesser things before I will trust you to be standing here in the pulpit and preach. And though we, we, this general statement is given here, the general principle here, Jesus here is specifically speaking about money. We see this more specific principle laid out in verse 11. That if you're unfaithful with, with wealth, with unrighteous uh, mammon, resource, rich, riches, then, Jesus rhetorically speaking, who's going to entrust you with true riches, with greater riches? No one is, is the answer. What's more, Jesus states that if you're unfaithful with possessions that belong to someone else, then again, rhetorically, who would give you your own things to, for your own possessions? No one. See, Jesus wants his disciples to be faithful in the use of an unrighteous wealth that has been given to us as a stewardship from God. They belong to him, and all our wealth belongs to him, but God gives it to us for a period of time that we might be stewards of it. And we need to be faithful in these smaller things with our money. We need to be faithful in using it to further His kingdom and further his will, of His will. And some, of the, and some of that means that you would use it to provide for yourself, 
Some of it means that you use it as God's means to, to enjoy. But if that's all you do, if you only use your resources for yourself, for your own enjoyment, for your own pleasures, then you may be in danger of being, unfaith- being an unfaithful steward. Because God gives you these resources to be a blessing to others. He blesses you so that you might be a blessing, right? So how do you use the wealth that God gives you for His glory? One way that we do so every Sunday, of course, is to set a portion aside of what God has given to us to support the work of this church. And that is a good means of a, a very elementary way of learning to give to God's work, to be good stewards. And God uses the money that you give to this church to support the work of this church, the, the proclamation of the gospel, the making of disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. In a very practical, it supports the, the staff, uh, the pastoral staff, administrative staff of this church. It, it supports the, the work of our missionaries that we, that we support around the world in their, uh, in their task as well. But all of it is used ultimately for the proclamation of the gospel and the furtherance of, of the kingdom of God. Of course, there are other worthy gospel efforts to support. Other, other uh, parachurch organizations that you may want to support. Other missionaries that you know of that you personally want to support. Others can choose to give to uh, their means to, to fellow believers within the church or outside the church. You might give, a lot of times, you, some of you are doing so through the meals ministry. You're giving of your resource to be a blessing to someone. You're, some of you have been shopping for groceries for other people. Jesus wants us to be faithful as stewards, to use our resources to, to be a blessing to others. Because the possessions that He has given to us do not belong to us. They belong to God. And therefore we ought to use it for God's purposes. Are we faithful in using the wealth that we have for God's purposes? Lastly, Jesus' third application for His disciples is is this in verse 13. It's to serve God with wealth. Serve God with wealth. Verse 13 we read, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus starts again with a general statement in verse 13, that a servant cannot serve two masters. It's just a, a truism. And some people might think of this, well, can't you, you can kind of have two masters, right? I mean, for instance, as a, I live here in California, I, I have a, I, I, my authority is the, the, the governor of the state, but also at the same time, my authority is the president of the state. So I kind of have two masters in that sense. But if you think about it, you cannot serve them both because there will come a time when the two disagree. Well, it's probably been many times the two disagree. And as a citizen, I must choose to either obey one and not the other. One must have a higher priority than the other. And this is true no matter what the two choices are. Jesus, As Jesus puts it, in a sense, you must hate one and love the other. You must be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve two masters. That's just, a, that's just a, a, a general, the general principle. And the same is true when it comes to God and money. 
God and wealth. You cannot serve both. If you serve God, then there will be times when God calls you to let go of your wealth, to not pursue wealth, to give up wealth. Like when Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler who asked him about eternal life, Jesus in the end said, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. You must choose to either serve God or serve wealth. Which will have the greater priority in your life? In premarital counseling that I've sometimes conducted with others, I often tell couples that we, when we talk about money and finances, that either you will use your wealth to serve God or you will use God to serve wealth. As disciples of Jesus Christ, you are to serve God as your master. And that means you will use your wealth to serve Him. You will serve Him by sharing with other resources. You will give the resources. You will meet the needs of others with those resources. But if instead you choose to serve wealth, that is to pursue riches before God, then you effectively place something else before Him. And there will be, time, there will be a time when you will use God in your pursuit of riches. Where you will neglect God in your pursuit of riches. We call that idolatry, especially because it involves the sin of greed. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes there these words, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. idolatry. You see, everybody serves and worships something or someone. And for many, it is self for others, it is wealth. And there are countless other earthly objects and people that we can serve above all. But for disciples of Christ, we are to serve God and Him alone above all things, above all people, and above, certainly above all our possessions. And we serve Him with our wealth, being faithful to use the possessions that He gives to us to make friends of this world who receive us on the other side of eternity. Well, as we conclude, let us keep this in mind. Let's summarize. Wealth, riches, material possessions, they all belong to the Lord and they're given to us from the Lord. And the corollary to that is that we are therefore stewards of it. We are managers of it. The question for us is, are we wise and shrewd with the use of it? Are we being wise and shrewd stewards of it? Are we being faithful stewards of it? Or do we fall into the temptation to look at the things that God has given to us, the possessions that we have, and worship it? Worship its, the, the, the stuff instead of the giver of the stuff. Do we worship the gift or the giver? And if we worship the giver, God, then we will use it, use these resources to serve Him. Because this wealth isn't meant to last. It's not going to last. I read this really sobering statement in one of the commentaries. That for many of us, at the end of our lives, all that is dear and treasure to us 
will fit in a hospital drawer. Not many, many things will fit in a hospital drawer. It'll be the last things you want close to you as you're dying. And even that, none of it you will take with you. The greatest treasure of all, the only treasure that you can take with you really, that you can never lose, is knowing Jesus Christ. If you're with us today and you have never known the treasure of Jesus Christ, I invite you to receive him today. Jesus Christ came to this world as a gift of God, a gift of God's love, who came and died on the cross for our sins. And he rose from the grave so that everyone, whoever believes in him, whoever turns from sin and turns in faith to Jesus Christ, might receive the hope of forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the promise of eternity in heaven with God the Father. And it's all through knowing Jesus. He is our greatest treasure. I invite you, if you, the Lord's leading you to, to turn from your sin, turn from your serving self, the worship and pursuit of riches and whatever it is that you're pursuing in this world and turn, over, turn yourself <laughs> and your faith in Christ. And you can do that today and just pray quietly where you're at home praying to receive the Lord. For those of us who already know Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure, therefore let us remember that He is our greatest treasure and let us use all our other treasures, our earthly treasures, the ones that God has entrusted to us as stewards to use it then, therefore, to serve the Lord, to serve our great God to tell others about Jesus Christ, to show the love of God in Jesus Christ so they might know the greatest treasure of all. So how do you use your wealth to serve the Lord? What are ways that you can use your wealth to serve the Lord as stewards? Let's pray. God, thank you, Father, for uh, your word and we ask that you would Help us to remember always that you are the giver of all things. You've given us everything we possess. Therefore, Lord, we are simply stewards and help us to be faithful. Help us to be shrewd in the use of these resources. We want to praise you and glorify you when we enjoy them. We want to praise you when we delight in them, when we can provide for our needs through them. But Lord, we pray that we would also delight in using these resources to further your kingdom. To, tell, to enable ways that, that people may know of your love in Christ, to hear the gospel so that they might turn from sin and turn in faith and repentance in Christ. So God, may you use us and help us to be faithful stewards, help us to be shrewd stewards, help us to remember that this world is ending and the material things that we possess are not going with us. Lord, help us to, to use it all as best as we can, for whatever time we have to tell others about Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be trustworthy. Guard us from greed and idolatry in all its many forms. 
Continue to build your church, we pray. And if there's anyone who's out there, Lord, who's just considering Christ, I pray that right now, right at this moment, you would speak clearly to them through the word that's been preached this morning and cause them to see that, yes, all their stuff, all of this world is empty. It's vanity unless they recognize that it's from you, that they would turn in faith to you and come to see and understand that you, are, you have provided salvation for them, that they would then come to see their great purpose as sons of light who will use all the stuff that they have, the resource, their wealth, to serve you. Lord, we pray that on the other side of eternity, we look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. We'll also, Lord, we thank you for the great promise that we will see others, friends, who will be in eternity because of how we were stewards of these riches that you provide for us. Oh God, even if we don't never know, we pray that you would lead a, a whole host of people to believe through the ministry, through the giving and the, of the resources that, have, that have come through this church. These things we pray in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.